Let's welcome Steve Van Rijn. Well, good morning, everybody. It's really uh, great to be here, and it's uh, just great to hear stories of uh, fresh churches being planted and uh, new initiatives since I was uh, lost uh, with you. I really am encouraged to see uh, the gospel advance that is taking place. Our theme for the next two days is leaders that last, and when we actually decided on that theme uh, last year, it felt relevant. In fact, uh, all the different continents are using the same title for their leadership time, leaders that last. It felt very relevant when we kind of landed on that uh, last year, but uh, sadly, as this year has um, transpired, it is unfortunately seems more relevant than ever. It doesn't seem like a month goes by where we don't hear another story of another high-profile Christian leader, uh, unfortunately, uh, disqualifying uh, themselves. And it's our hope and prayer through these various gatherings that we have in on three different continents that uh, as we open God's Word, as we receive from His Spirit, as we uh, resolve to put God first, uh, that the legacy that we would leave as leaders isn't one of a trail of destruction, but rather an example of faithfulness by the grace of God, empowered by the Spirit uh, for the glory of God. So that's our hope and desire, that uh, during these two days we would all be motivated and encouraged and garrisoned to be the leaders uh, that God has called us to be. Now, in this opening session, uh, I have uh, entitled this opening session, uh, Anti-Fragile Leadership for Testing Times. And uh, the seed thought for this message actually came from a blog post that I read by uh, Doug Wilson, not Andrew Wilson, but Doug Wilson. And he was, uh, this blog post was a review of a book uh, a secular book entitled uh, Anti-Fragile Leadership, and um, Doug Wilson in the blog writes the following. He gives a summary of the book. He says, institutions, corporations, management systems, biological organisms can be fragile, robust, or anti-fragile. According to the author, fragile systems require predictability. They want the environment to be placid. They want as much protection as possible from external stresses. Robust systems do okay when they're in trouble. They are resilient. But anti-fragile systems are complicated. They positively thrive in the midst of chaos. Chaos is the soil in which they grow and flourish. In peaceful times, a fragile system can give out the appearance of stability, but this is just a mark for fragility. And because it's easy to be foolish, many people strive for just that, appearance, not knowing that the house built on sand had a five-star rating. Wilson goes on to give two examples. He says, two historical examples of fragile systems that did not appear to be at all fragile were the Soviet Union prior to its collapse and medieval Christendom prior to the Reformation, when subsequent events overtook them, that kind of rare but extreme happening that the author calls a black swan event, their fragility was exposed. Fragile systems are cowardly because the world is filled with risk. The way that fragile systems manage this is by trying to outsource the risk. But the best way to cultivate an anti-fragile system is not through recklessness, but by means of a carefully thought-out, skin-in-the-game approach. A lot of pastors could benefit from the gleanings of the principles of this book. They want to build a peaceful church that is free from controversy, but so instead they build a fragile one that is entirely vulnerable to controversy. 
In the name of fighting off infections, they put their immune system under a ban. I can't tell you how many times I've heard pastors insisting on fragility as though it was one of the fruits of the Spirit. They demand the cultivation of fragility as though it were a cardinal virtue. And because this is how the world works, what they have insisted upon, they certainly have gotten. Fragility is our middle name. And then Wilson concludes the blog by quoting Psalm 106 and verse 15. He gave them their requests, but sent them leanness into their soul. The question that I want to look at this morning is, how do we become anti-fragile leaders? How do we build up our immune system? How do we develop gospel robustness? How are we to be anti-fragile leaders ourselves? How are we to build anti-fragile community? I don't need to tell you here in the United Kingdom for the need for anti-fragile leadership. Faithfully serving Jesus Christ is becoming increasingly popular, unpopular, is it not? Anybody who's been involved in any form of church leadership for any length of time in these United Kingdom will know the cold Arctic wind of secular unbelief that seems to be blowing stronger than ever. A example uh, from these own shores could possibly be found by uh, Tim uh, Farron's resignation. The former leader of the Liberal Democrats made a resignation speech uh, last year after the general election, and he said the following. From the first day of my leadership, I have faced questions about my Christian faith. I've tried to answer them with, gr with grace and patience. Sometimes my answers could have been wiser. At the start of this election, I find myself under scrutiny again, asked about matters to do with my faith. I felt guilty that this focus was distracting attention from our campaign, obscuring our message. Journalists have every right to ask what they see fit. The consequences of the focus on my faith is that I found myself torn between living as a faithful Christian and serving as a political leader. A better, wiser person than me may have been able to deal with this more successfully, to have remained faithful to Christ while leading a political party in the current environment. To be a political leader, especially a progressive of a, sorry, especially of a progressive liberal party in 2007, and to live as a committed Christian to hold faithfully to the Bible's teaching has felt impossible for me. I'm a liberal to my fingertips, and that liberalism means that I'm passionate about defending the rights and liberties of people who believe different things than me. There are Christians in politics who take the view that they should impose the tenets of faith on society, but I've not taken that approach because I disagree with it. It's not liberal, and it is counterproductive when it comes to advancing the gospel. Even so, I seem to be the subject of suspicion because of what I believe and who my faith is in in which case we are kidding ourselves if we think we live in a tolerant, liberal society. And that is why I have chosen to step down as the leader of the liberal Dem Democrats. Now, you may not agree with Tim's political perspectives, but we can all see his challenge, can we not? We can relate to the challenge, not simply of leadership of a political party, but a leader of a church to remain faithful to the teaching of Christ and still be relevant into the society that we are working and ministering in. And friends, barring a massive gospel awakening, Tim's challenge will increasingly become our challenge, and it will certainly become our children's challenge, which is why there is a massive imperative that we 
develop and cultivate an anti-fragile leadership mentality, not only for ourselves personally, but the communities that we have the privilege of serving. So how do we do that? How do we cultivate this anti-fragile leadership? Well, as I reflected and prayed about it, I thought there was a passage of Scripture that particularly helps us to that end. So if you've got your Bibles, if you want to turn to Ephesians chapter 4, Ephesians chapter 4, and we're going to be looking at the first 16 verses of Ephesians chapter 4 to help us cultivate an anti-fragile leadership. Apostle Paul writes the following. He says, as a prisoner of the Lord, then, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you have received. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. Make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of, pre- uh, bond of peace. There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to one hope when you were called. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. To each one of us, grace has been given just as Christ apportioned it. This is why it said, he who ascended on high, he took captives and gave gifts to his people. Verse 11, so Christ himself gave apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors and teachers to equip his people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Then we will no longer be infants, tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of people in their deceitful scheming. Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will grow to become in every respect the mature body of him who is the head, that is Christ. From him, the whole body is joined and held together by every supporting ligament grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. Let's pray. Lord, we pray as we come to your word this morning. We pray that, Holy Spirit, you would be with us. We pray for your instruction and for your fortification. We pray that you would garrison us to become anti-fragile leaders. And all God's people said? Now, there's seven uh, signposts that I want to point us to in order to cultivate anti-fragile leadership. The first thing that I want you to notice is in verse 1, this massive call to trust God. Paul is writing to the Ephesian church from a Roman prison. This is a dark and difficult place, and which is why this section of Scripture is so helpful to us uh, to help us understand the kind of internal scaffolding that we require in order to be the leaders that God wants us to. Paul isn't writing this letter from uh, his office or next to uh, a fire as, as, as he meditates on the kind of leaders we should be. No, he's, he's writing this from prison. He's writing this under stress, which is so helpful because it teaches us how we ought to respond when we're in a difficult and stressful situation. It tells us not only how to respond, but more specifically, how we are to relate to God in the midst of the challenge and the midst of the difficulty. And Paul gives us the heads up on this in verse 1. He describes himself as a prisoner of the Lord. Right off the bat, at the start of chapter 4, Paul shows us that he, at the most deepest fundamental level, understands that God is large and in charge, and that God is fully to be trusted. God is the one who is defining his life. Paul does not see himself as a victim of circumstance. He doesn't see him at the mercy of of the wicked, evil Roman government. No, 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 no. Paul, at the deepest, most fundamental level, understands that he is a follower of God and that God is sovereign over all. And because God is sovereign over all, Paul is not the prisoner of Rome. Paul is the prisoner of the Lord. What is happening to him isn't outside of the orbit of God's control or God's authority. No, no, no. God is sovereign and he is arranging and orchestrating events for his good pleasure. Which, why, which is why Paul can declare that 
The God that he serves is the one who has arranged and orchestrated these events. He is a prisoner of the Lord. Now, if there was anybody who would struggle to write that in church history, it would surely be the Apostle Paul himself, would it not? Because what happened the last time he was in prison? Remember, he got arrested and he put, you know, got stuck in prison. He was uh, whooped and beaten and severely flogged, not just flogged, severely flogged. And him and his mate uh, were singing and worshiping the Lord. And then what happened? There was an earthquake, right? And God smashed open the prison and it was incredible. The, the Ethiopian jailer gets saved. A church gets planted in Philippi and it's an incredible thing. And I can imagine when the, when the text message came out, Paul's in prison, Paul's in prison, and some of the churches were freaking out, oh, we better, we, we better, better fast and pray that something will happen. And, and, and then like the Philippian church is like, don't, don't worry about it. Just wait, you're gonna see what's gonna happen next. We know this deal, right? The main Christian leader gets thrown in jail, no problem. It's just an opportunity for God to show how mighty and awesome he is. There's gonna be an earthquake. Actually, what's gonna happen is the jail doors are gonna open. Actually, conversion is gonna take place. Watch, a church is gonna be planted off the back of this. And then it doesn't happen. Not the next day, not the following day, not the following month and month. What's going on here? The most gifted guy on the planet at the time, the person who was the very focal point for the advance of Christianity is in jail. What's going on? What's going on? God's in control. God's in control. And I can imagine there must have been loads of Christians freaking out. This is such a waste of time. This is so ridiculous. Why is he in prison? Because they couldn't have anticipated 2018, they couldn't anticipate hundreds of people studying a letter that wouldn't have been written if he wasn't in jail. If he was just going on to the next thing, he wouldn't have got to write the letter that's gonna undergird us for the work that God has called us in. Friends, we, we don't know everything, but what we do know is that God is in charge. We are not victims of circumstance. We, we're not at the mercy of the political forces that are taking place in Europe. God is sovereign and in control. And if we are to be anti-fragile leaders at the deepest and most fundamental place in our hearts, we need to embrace and trust God. God is in control. Paul was able to summarize what he actually thought uh, around these things in Romans 8.28, where he says, and we know that in all things, God works for the good for those who love him and have been called according to his purpose. What, what, what's the really difficult word to swallow in Romans 8, 28? What is it? It's all, seriously? Is God really working all things for the good that can't be right? There's no ways that that dude not discovering the problem in our house is working for good, right? That can't be it. Paul, let's get into the Greek here. There must be a mistake. Like, I come from South Africa. South Africans are a pretty optimistic group of people, and, and, and like we, we can shoot for, and God works most things for the good. I realize I'm in the UK now. You guys want to you, you dumb this down. God's working some things for the good. You, 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 you could earn he's working some things for the good. We'd go for most things for the good, but actually it reads all things. And it can't be all things, Right? It is, that's got to be wrong. It can't be all things because if it's all things, it's that thing. And there's no ways that that thing is being used for the good. There is, there, there's, there's no ways that that's possible. But that is exactly what Paul is writing. And if you read 2 Corinthians, I think we can fairly say that Paul suffered more than any of us in this room without question. And he's the dude that's writing, God is working all things for the good. Charles Spurgeon says, when you cannot trace his hand, we must learn to trust his heart. When we cannot, when it doesn't make any sense, I don't get this God, we're planting a site, we're on mission for you, why is this going wrong? It doesn't make any sense. When we can't trace his hand, we must trust his heart. Would you put Paul in prison? I wouldn't have put Paul in prison. 
There are lots of things. Some of you know Simon Pettit. Why did he die at 50? I still don't get it. But when I can't trace his hand, I must trust his heart. Friends, if you get the sovereignty of God, if you believe it and embrace it and celebrate it, it will enable you to be anti-fragile leaders. Because when you come under pressure and difficulty, instead of being crushed by the circumstance, you will be able to embrace the fact that God is above the circumstance. And actually, there's a gospel opportunity in the midst of the chaos. And if you trust God, and if you're connected to God, it will enable you to respond in incredibly fruitful ways that would advance His kingdom and result in his name being glorified and lifted up. The second thing that we see signposted to us in this passage is a call to reflect a Christ-like response. And we see that in verse 2. This is very counterintuitive of Paul. I think we would all know, if we thought about it, that it is very normal that when you experience something hard and difficult, for you to respond in a immature way. There are numerous kind of uh, reality TV programs that are built on this, so you get these kind of survivor kind of TV programs where, you know, kind of uh, 30 people are sent to a very remote island with, with, with no help or electricity or everything for 40 days, and it's just great box office just seeing uh, kind of city dwellers really need to actually look after themselves in difficult situations, and, and the drama in the theater is just immature responses to difficult situations, and then immature responses to the immature response to the difficult situation. It's the same kind of thing for the training for the Royal Marines. If you want to be a Royal Marine, they're just going to put you in incredibly difficult situations because they want to see you pop. They want to see whether you're able to handle these very, very difficult situations. But you don't have to have watched a kind of Survivor TV series or have done a Royal Marines project to know this. You may have just done a camping holiday with your family <laughs> to know the reality of what I will call the cycle of folly. We under pressure, we respond immaturely, the other person in the family responds in an immature way to my immaturity, and then you just get into the cycle of folly, and Paul just pulls the fire along. Paul says if you get Jesus and you get the gospel, then you're going to need to do a counterintuitive response. Instead of being caught up in a cycle of folly, where you just throw petrol on the flames, no, 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 you need to be empowered by the gospel and through the work of the Spirit to respond in a Christ-like way. Notice Paul says here that we are to be completely humble and gentle. We are to be patient. We are to bear with one another in love. So firstly, the call is to be completely humble and gentle. Where does he get that from? He gets that from Jesus himself. Jesus himself de described himself as humble and gentle in heart. Don Carlson says, humility suggests a kind of lowliness, a uh, cheerfulness of, of allowing others to take precedence over us, about building one another up, about cheerfully counting others better than ourselves. Meekness is not slighted when others are offensive. It doesn't retaliate. It goes quickly to God in prayer, as Moses did when he was confronted with opposition. It does not keep scorecards. Can I ask you as leaders... This morning, are you completely humble and gentle? Or did you arrive at this conference pretty annoyed? And actually, you're really glad that you got an opportunity to meet with so-and-so because you want to settle some scores. They said something, you, they did something that's really offended you, and you, you can't wait to put them right. Or why so-and-so? Why did she get interviewed? Why, why wasn't my wife interviewed? Why... why, why? Paul calls us to be completely humble and gentle. 
to be patient. Another way to translate patience is long-suffering. How are you doing with long-suffering? When do you need patience? You need patience when things don't go your way. When things aren't working out the way that you anticipated. You see, if I said, put up your hand, if you want to be any fragile leader, we'd all put up our hands. But then who wants to be completely humble and gentle? Who wants to be patient? Who wants to be long-suffering? And then when you run out of patience, what happens? You bear with one another in love. When patience runs out, it's like, I've been waiting so long. I've run out of patience. What do I need to do? Well, you need to bear with. Not become a bear, <laughs> but bear with in love. Friends, the degree to which we can cultivate a counterintuitive gospel response to pressure and difficulty will be the degree to which we cultivate an anti-fragile community. If when we come under stress, we respond in an immature way, the chances are the people that we are leading, we should anticipate that they will respond in an immature way back to us. But if under pressure and difficulty and hardship, by the grace of God and by the empowering of the Spirit, we are able to respond in a counterintuitive way, if we bring wisdom instead of folly to the program, we're going to get into a cycle of wisdom rather than a cycle of folly. The third pointer that we see in this passage is a call for unity. We are called to strive for unity. Notice verse 3, make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. Now, we know that in the context of Ephesians, a big theme that goes through this book is the, the massive effort that Paul is trying to establish a kind of theological grid for Jew and Gentile to worship God together. And in chapter 2, he's shown that it took nothing less than the finished work of Jesus Christ to break the dividing wall of hostility to create this new community, this, this new uh, humanity. In, in chapter 3, he's talking about that it's now through the church that the manifold, which can be translated the, the multicolored wisdom, this Jew-Gentile worshiping God uh, together. So this theme of unity and difference coming together is really shot through the whole epistle. But what is interesting to note here is that the call that Paul gives in chapter 4 isn't to create a spirit of unity, but rather to keep the unity that, it, that already exists in the spirit. Paul is saying, God has created a unity amongst you already, and I want to call you to make every effort to keep the unity of the spirit, not to create the unity of the spirit, Paul isn't saying get together and sing kumbaya and, and kind of imagine that you're together. He's saying you are united already. Now live out that unity that you already have in the Spirit and make every effort to keep it. And they're really kind of within any community or within a, a family of churches, they're, they're, they're kind of two main ways that you can, you can break the unity. And, and, and the one way is the obvious way uh, that, that we're kind of all aware of, and, and that way is the bull, correct? The, 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 the individual that is just like kind of a bit bombastic and just kind of breaks things open. He's the bull in the china shop, very kind of insensitive, lacks self-awareness, lacks nuance, and just kind of blow things up. And they, 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 their life is kind of characterized by just... Uh, uh, an array of kind of relational blowouts. They kind of go from one relational blowout uh, to the other, and they always think it's the other person's fault. So you, you, you kind of get the bull, in the, and, and, and the bull is wrong, and the bull should repent. Um, and there's a lot written about bulls. But what is less written about, and is equally destructive, is the passive-aggressive. The person that doesn't actually confront. They don't, they don't like to get into arguments. They don't like to get into disagreements. But they have very strong opinions that they just keep undercover. These are the kind of people who just kind of 
cycle out when things aren't going their way. It's like, Steve, we just decided to move on. We really love you. It's great. Everything's great, but we're just moving on. Isn't there any issue? No, 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 no. We're so grateful to you. Thank you. Thank you. We're moving on. Which doesn't feel like making every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of priests. So how are we to avoid the plight of the bull, and how are we to avoid the plight of the passive-aggressive? Well, Paul gives us the answer in verse 15. Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will grow to become in every respect the mature body of Him who is the head, that is Christ. The way that we guard the unity of the Spirit is through thousands of truth and love exposures. Now, as an individual believer, you should get that truth and love exposure through reading the Bible yourself, through listening to sermons, through pastoral conversations. But within the community, we guard the unity by ourselves being willing and available to have these conversations, conversations that are characterized by both truth and love. Truth and love working together in tandem help guard the unity that Christ has purchased for us. Tim Keller writes the following. He says, love without truth is sentimentality. It supports and affirms us, but keeps us in denial about our flaws. Truth without love is harshness. It gives us information, but in such a way that we cannot really hear it. God's saving love in Christ, however, is marked by both radical truthfulness about who we are, and yet also radical, unconditional commitment to us. The merciful commitment strengthens us to see the truth about ourselves and repent. The conviction and repentance moves us to cling to and to rest in God's mercy and grace. John Stott puts it like this. He said, truth becomes hard if it's not softened by love. Love becomes soft if it is not strengthened by truth. The apostle calls us to hold the two together, which shouldn't be difficult for spirit-filled believers, since the Holy Spirit himself is the spirit of truth, and his first fruit is love. John Stott said, it shouldn't be difficult to have truth and love conversations, and yet it is, isn't it? Why is it difficult? I want to suggest to you that it is difficult because of our temperaments, because of our temperaments. Most of us, not all of us, but most of us will be more attracted to love than we are truth, while others of us will be more attracted to truth than we are love. For some of us, we love to see ourselves as being kind and loving people. We're the kind of peacemakers. We're the cheerleaders. We, we're the glass half full kind of people. We, 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 we love to, to spot the positivity that's happening. For others of us, we love truth. We love theological clarity. We, 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 we love a theological precision. We, 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 we want to guard people from deception and from, from, from error. And, and, and so depending on how you're wired, you, you, you're going to be drawn to, to either love or to truth. But Paul calls us to both. So you may be thinking to yourself, well, what, what's the big deal if I'm just into love and Uh, not truth. Well, if you're the kind of person that's just into love and not truth, what's the problem with it? The problem with it is that most people, dare I say all people, cannot see the truth about who they are without the help of others. God has so designed us that even if we're the most self-aware person on the planet, we still have blind spots about who we really are which means nobody on the planet is going to be able to see who they really are. They're not really going to be able to spot their faults 
unless there are people that have the courage to have a truth and love conversation with them. So if you're saying, well, I'm just the kind of loving kind of person, I don't like to have those conversations, your modus operandi is actually stopping people from growing, and that is an issue. Drilling down a little bit deeper, sometimes if we explore the motives of why we're the kind of loving person, it can actually be sometimes a little bit dark. At times, the reason why we want to be loving and peacemaking and cheerleading is because we love the fact that people see us as loving, as peacemakers, as bridge builders. And so actually, what's at play here is our own personal marketing campaign. We like to be liked. And in the name of loving people, we actually like to not have difficult conversations, which would actually help them in order that our reputation may continue, which actually isn't very loving at all, is it? Or what about being the truth kind of person? Well, I'm into truth, not love. I'm not this kind of softy kind of person. What's wrong with that? Well, what's wrong with that is if you've done pastoral ministry with any degree of success over any length of time, you'll know that most people can't handle the truth. And if you just enter in with truth, if you just have an accurate diagnosis without any form of empathy, without actually caring for the welfare of people, it is only the most mature people that can handle that. Most people will not hear your counsel because you don't display any love behind that. No doubt, some of you have had family members who've been very sick and have sometimes had to deal with doctors who just kind of do this stuff all the time. And you've had your hair blown back about how somebody could tell somebody that they're dying just like they were telling in the latest football scores, just with passing on facts. And it's just like, wow, really? When you have difficult conversations with people and you're not interested in love, nine out of 10 people won't be able to hear what you're saying. They will be put off by your gruffness. They will make your immature delivery the reason why they won't listen to it. And so if your motive is really to help people and to really see them change, then you've really got to get better at communicating weaknesses in people in a loving way in the hope that they may actually receive it. But if we drill down a little deeper to the truth, guys, if we're honest, sometimes our motive isn't theological accuracy and theological precision and defending the faith. The truth is, in a lot of ways, we like to be right. We like to win arguments. We like to show people that they're wrong. We like to put them in their place. And so what is actually living under, we're the truth guys, is something less than holy. Friends, if we are going to be anti-fragile churches, if we're going to be anti-fragile eldership teams, if we're going to be an anti-fragile movement, then we're going to need to become really good at having truth and love conversations. We're in the south of England, so let's just say it like it is. There's a kind of thinking that goes like this. If I don't talk about it, it will go away. If I don't say it, it will just go away. And friends, it doesn't go away. It just builds up and then it blows. The Bible needs to trump culture and the Bible says you need to have the courage to have truth and love conversations. Simply pretending that the problem doesn't exist will be destructive to your marriage, it will be destructive to your eldership team, it will be destructive to your church, it will be destructive to us as a movement. Maybe you've arrived here and you've like, mm, there's an issue on the team, 
or there's an uh, advance, there's an issue. You really need to do something about that. And this isn't permission to be the ball to go in and just smash things. No, 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 it's truth and love. It's being prayerful, but it is making every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace, which means I am going to resolve before God to actually have these conversations to the very best of my ability where I am honest, I'm truthful, but I'm doing this in a loving and in a redemptive way. If we don't do that, we are building fragile elderships, fragile churches, a fragile movement. The degree to which we can have truthful and loving conversations is the degree to which we build in an anti-fragile environment where we can talk about the real issues. Signpost number four is living in light of core theological foundations. So, Paul here calls us to a number of ones, uh, one body, one spirit, one hope, uh, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all. There's a, there's a theological framework that Paul places as being absolutely critical if we to be the kind of anti-fragile leaders that God wants to call us in. I want to make a prediction here that in Western culture, as, as things become more secular, as, as things get ramped up and become kind of more anti-Christian, if you like, I want to make a prediction here that the churches that hold a theological conviction as being important, churches that root themselves in the Word of God and actually minister out of a conviction of Scripture are going to be churches that prevail. And churches that are simply just trying to adapt to the culture and give the culture what they want are actually going to be shown to be fragile. Because as the culture becomes harder, they're going to make a choice, which is going to be, I'm going to fundamentally compromise Christianity, or I now quickly need to start digging theological ditches in order to establish a foundation that's actually going to help my people to withstand the onslaught that they experience in the culture, and they're going to discover that it's too late, and it's way harder to establish this theological conviction when you're going concern instead of building it into the very foundations. And so the, one of the very best ways that you can prepare your church to be able to handle a cultural challenge is by having a theological conviction. We actually believe the stuff. We actually teach the Bible. We're not actually just trying to uh, appease culture. Now, we want to be contextually relevant, so John Stott said it right. It's, it's easy to be faithful uh, if we're not concerned about being relevant, and it's easy to be relevant if we're not concerned about being faithful. It's the combination of being faithful and relevant that is exacting. Brilliant. So we, we, we want to contextualize, but we don't over-contextualize. We remain faithful to the Word of God. And the Apostle Paul says if we do that in verse 14, then we won't be like infants, tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and craftiness of people in their deceitful schemings. Paul says if you actually get a theological grid, you won't be a spiritual baby. And we don't want to build churches that are filled with spiritual babies. And the thing about a baby is if you've got a newborn, you'll know, well, what's the deal about babies? Well, one thing about babies is they're not discerning what they eat, correct? You need to be really careful about what they eat. If you leave your baby in the garden, your baby will start eating mud. That's what they'll do. They'll, they'll, they'll eat an earthworm. They, they, they are not discerning when it comes to food. You need to make sure what they put in their mouths. Babies just stick anything in their mouths. Babies by nature are unstable because their head is disproportionately big based upon the rest of their body. So if you just sit a baby down, it's just going to fall over. They're not stable. And babies lack focus, do they not? They, they, their attention goes all over the place. And Paul is just like going, guys, 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 please, please, can, can, you, can you root yourself in the Word of God? Can you, can you understand the, 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 the key theological foundations so that you're not a spiritual baby? 
You really need to know what you're feeding. You can't just stick whatever you want into your mouth. And it's not helpful if you're not stable. If, if churches keep on collapsing and falling over, it's not good. And churches, you need to lose your ADHD. What you're going to discover, it's like maybe you, 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 this is like your second advanced thing, and it's like, here they're going again. It's like the Word, and it's the Gospel, and it's Jesus. Don't they have anything else? No, we don't. No, we don't. It's the gospel. It's Jesus. It's his mission. It's been empowered by the Spirit. We don't have anything else, and we're not going to try and create something else just so that we can appear novel and interesting for you. It really is Jesus. We really do believe the gospel. We believe that Jesus is enough, and the gospel is good enough to change all of life. We're not like, what's it this thing? Oh, this, and then that, and then it's just like we're moving around, and we've got the, t- the attention span of an 18-month-old. No, we want to grow up. We want to be rooted in the truth. We want the gospel to go deeper. We want our love for Christ to increase. We want the main thing to be the main thing. We want to have genuine foundations on which we can build. We don't want to be spiritual babies. The fifth thing that Paul points us to is in verse 7, that we get to celebrate each other's unique God-given gifts. Notice verse 7, but to each one of us, grace has been given just as Christ has apportioned it. What is fascinating is if you do a careful study of Ephesians 4, is Paul has this constant theme running through these 16 verses that he really wants the whole church mobilized. So to each one a gift has been given. Then he speaks about each part doing its work. At the end, he speaks about every supporting ligament. So right through Ephesians chapter 4 is this idea that everybody's got a gift, everybody's got a contribution, everybody's meant to be doing this stuff. And then even when he defines uh, leadership gifts, the purpose of those leadership gifts is not to monopolize ministry, but to equip people to do the works of service that God has called them to. We will be fragile communities if we only have 5% of our communities actually functionally engaged in the work of ministry. The responsibility for us in this leadership environment is to be a trained and equipped in order that we might train and equip. We are meant to empower every person within our community to make their unique contribution, and if we don't, we will be fragile communities. But a community that has everybody deployed and engaged and using the spiritual gift that the ascended Lord Jesus has given them is an incredibly robust and anti-fragile community. Everybody to each one. How irresponsible, Paul. Did you really have to say each? Have you been to my church? I can show you some people. Are you really trying to tell me that they've got a unique spiritual gift that's meant to be deployed for the advance of the kingdom? And Paul would say, absolutely. Absolutely, each one. How's your church doing? You're building a Sunday matinee? So you're preaching awesome? They love it? They applaud it? They go home? That's not the vision of Ephesians 4. The vision of Ephesians 4 is not that we're building great preaching centers to the glory of God and just, wow, what a word, wow. I can't wait for next week. Well, the worship's fantastic. This is awesome. I'm coming back for this. Are people deployed? Are people using their gift? How are they doing it? What's your plan for people to discover their gift, to be deployed in their gift? Is, each peop- is the expectation in your community that everybody will do something in order to build up the body of Christ for the common good and for the glory of God? Everybody's got a gift. And yet, we're told that there is leadership. It kind of sounds contradictory, doesn't it? It's like, surely if everybody's a, got a gift, who needs leadership? We're just like this nameless, faceless community where everybody does something. Well, no, no, actually, Paul tells us that Christ ascended and then he gave very specific gifts to the body of Christ. And leadership really matters. Churches and movements where there isn't leadership are actually fragile communities. Now, because some high-profile leaders are falling, there's now a pushback. It's like our, our model of leadership's all wrong, and, and, and maybe it is in certain cases. 
But the idea of people taking spiritual responsibility in a community isn't wrong, it is biblical. In Matthew 9, uh, we read the following. Jesus went through all the towns and the villages, teaching in the synagogues and proclaiming the good news of the kingdom and healing every disease and sickness. When he saw the crowd, he had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. When Jesus looks out on a crowd and sees that they're sheep without a shepherd, he laments. A community without leadership isn't something to be celebrated, it is something to be lamented. And how does he respond to that? He says, you need to ask the Lord of the harvest to raise out workers because the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few, and it's a big setup because we know that the very next verse is he actually, he commissions them out to be workers. So he says, get to pray for workers, and while they're praying, he then commissions them to do the very thing that they're praying for. When you pray for leadership, be careful. God will answer your prayer personally. The other thing that's important to note if we are to build anti-fragile churches and be an anti-fragile movement is that we really need to play with a full deck of cards. The ascended Christ didn't just give pastors and teachers. He gave apostles. He gave prophets. He gave evangelists. He gave pastors and teachers to the church. And friends, our challenge as a movement is that we would see all the gifts emerge and flourish and that we would play with a full deck of cards. How many of us feel the deficiency of a genuine evangelist amongst us where somebody could come in and really with an amazing grace gift, see many born again and added to the church. How many of us long for prophetic ministry that truly builds up the church, is Christ-centered, is in the context of mission, that is like hearing the, the very words of God to catalyze and mobilize us to the work that God has called us to. Friends, we're a young movement, and we need to pray that God would raise up all the gifts, because if Jesus is given a gift, then I want the gifts that Jesus is given, right? I don't want just one gift. I want all the gifts. The final thing that we see in this passage that moves us towards an anti-fragile leadership is that we see that the goal is maturity. The goal is fullness in Christ. Notice verse 13 until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining, up, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Or notice verse 15, and we will grow and become in every aspect the mature body of Him who is the head that is Christ. Paul is saying in no uncertain terms that the goal for you personally and for us corporately is maturity in Christ. The goal is that we would become more like Christ. Friends, having a biblically clear goal is absolutely critical to be anti-fragile. If you don't know what the goal is, then you can easily become disappointed and disillusioned and want to give up. Paul is clear, he says it in verse 13, and he says it in verse 15, that the goal is maturity in Christ. If you get this, it will make you incredibly anti-fragile. If you don't get this, if you run after false gods and false goals, then you are likely to become incredibly fragile. What is your hope? What is your dream? What is your goal? Well, I want my church to make it to 200 or 300, or 500, or 1,000, or 2,000, or 5,000. There's always another number. There's another goal. If that's your goal, you could become incredibly fragile if you don't make it. Or is your goal like, I need to be a part of a movement that's successful, that just has success written all over it? 
which means I certainly don't want to sign up to the Apostle Paul's movement because he's in prison and now we've got to take up offerings to support him in prison. This really sucks. I'm tired of it. Do we really have to pray for PJ's visa? Can't he sort himself out? I'm tired of this. He's going to be helping me. I don't want to help him. I want to be a part of something that's successful that's just going to blow everything up and make me feel bigger and better and more important than I really am. That's what I want to be a part of. But Paul is saying the goal is maturity. It's being like Christ. And it makes all the difference. It makes all the difference in your marriage. Because I have people that come and see me and they're very articulate about what their problems of their spouse are, how immature their spouse are. And they tell me how bad the whole situation is. And then I just go, wow, you're really lucky. And like, what do you mean I'm lucky? I've got a terrible spouse. Why are you telling me you're lucky? Well, I'm like, you know, the goal in your Christian life is to mature, to become like Jesus. And because of that, the worse your spouse is, the better the opportunity you have to exercise Christian maturity. <laughs> One mature person in a marriage makes all the difference. A mature person, one ma a mature person just wraps around the immature and just covers all their cracks. My wife is the living example of this. It's incredible. My life is so happy because of her maturity. It makes up for my immaturities, my weaknesses. I'm allowed on the stage. It would never have happened if it wasn't for my wife. One person. If you get maturity, it means the worst the event the greater the opportunity for you to be mature. So when I buy the house and it goes wrong and the business is really tough and it's like, why is all of this happening? Well, one of the reasons is because Jesus wants to transform you into his image. And that normally doesn't happen when everything's going swimmingly. I don't know about you, but I don't generally grow in my spiritual life when everything's super easy. I normally just get a bit slack and I really like to take credit, and I assume that it's because of my godliness that I'm really getting blessed, and that's why all of these good things are happening to me, but it's when I'm under stress, when it's difficult, when it's hard, it causes me to press in to God. What does Paul himself say in 2 Corinthians chapter 1 to the church? that weren't very impressed with him. You're not very impressive movement leader, Paul. We've got some super apostles. We're going to hook up with them. And Paul needs to write a letter to defend his ministry. And what does he say? I do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about the troubles we experience in the province of Asia, far beyond our ability to endure, so that indeed in our hearts we felt the sentence of death. But all of this happened. Why? But all of this happened so that we may not rely on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. God will allow challenges in our lives to wean us off ourselves and onto him. If the Apostle Paul needed to do that, and if the Apostle Paul was unembarrassed to say, you want me to power up, you want me to tell you how impressive I am, you want me to share all my strengths, I'm gonna write a whole letter telling you about all my weaknesses. Why? Because at the heart of the gospel is this, God came for weak and broken people to save and rescue them. That is the gospel message. And the gospel message demands gospel-shaped leaders. What are gospel-shaped leaders? Gospel-shaped leaders are people that in and of themselves know that left to themselves, they are under great pressure far beyond their ability to endure. So that indeed in their hearts, they feel the sentence of death. What is that? That's a very dark place. But all of this happened so that I may not rely on myself. This isn't strength from within, but that I might rely on God. That is gospel-shaped leadership. The goal needs to be maturity. How do you get mature? Do you pull up your socks and be an incredible leader? No. You just acknowledge, Lord, left to myself. I'm drunk on myself. I'm addicted to myself. But I desperately need you. And the wonderful thing is at the end of 2 Corinthians, when Paul has three times cried out that he would remove the thorn, and God says, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. And Paul goes, that's really awesome then, because then I'm gonna rejoice in my weakness, because when I'm weak, then I'm strong. You wanna be an anti 
fragile leader, don't pump up your muscles. Understand the fundamental gospel message and understand at the most fundamental level that you, the only way that you can get right with God is on the basis of grace and sheer grace alone. And the only way that you're gonna grow in maturity is by the basis of God's grace and the empowering of the presence. His power is made perfect in weakness. And then you're gonna come and you say, Lord, then I'll boast in my weakness because when I'm weak, then I'm strong. I thank you that your grace is sufficient for me. I need your grace for today and I need your grace for tomorrow and there's never gonna be a day where I don't need your grace. I really do need it. And please, would you do your work of transforming me into your image? I want a biblical goal that will create biblical expectations so I don't become disappointed and sad by false goals and false promises. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I thank you for each and every person in this room. I thank you for faithful servants. I thank you for men and women who love you and love your church. And Lord, I pray that by your grace and through the empowering of the Holy Spirit, that you would make us anti-fragile leaders, that you would help us build an internal scaffolding that will enable us to handle all that life throws at us. Lord, I pray for those that are going through very difficult situation. Pray for Lois, who was honest enough to share a vulnerability. I pray your power in weakness. I pray for your all-sufficient grace to rest upon us. Because when we are weak, then we are strong. I ask this in your name and for your glory. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Amen.